Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make. But don't say we didn't warn you. So people, y'all may be thinking, why now? You know, why are we talking about this now? One, we have a podcast. Yeah. That's and true. we can talk about whatever the fuck we want. Wait, what? We have a podcast? What? We do, yeah. Since when? Two. By the time this episode airs, we will be kind of midway between a couple of important dates for me in the month of March. Yep. My mom died two years ago on March 9, and uh, March 14 was her birthday. So uh, I kind of figured, and then, you know, also March is Women's History Month, and my mom was my hero, and she was a hero mm-hmm. to a lot of people. And I feel like true fact. I feel like it's only right that we that we pay tribute to my mom in mm-hmm. hearing and airing out this twenty now twenty year old essay. I love that we're doing this. I think this is just such a treat. Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Hamlet. And this week it's Hamlet 301. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy the show and come back for more. Maybe a little bit sometimes. I mean, all the time. All uh, the time. All the time. Things are different at 301 level episodes. Um, This is only our second one, and it's different from the last time we did a 301, and it'll probably change again the next time we do a 301. So in short, 101 episodes give you an overview of the play, whatever play it is we're talking about. 201s explore a couple of topics that arise from a close reading of the text, and 301s will generally be outside ideas and concepts or lenses applied to one particular text. And because of that, because we want 301s to be hyper-focused, we're not going to be including some of our regular features that you may have gotten used to, like the rhetorical device of the week, or burbage breaks, or games, or fun. Yeah. <laughs> no, what? It's always fun. <laughs> no, we're going to have fun. No, it's, it's always so much fun. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we operate on the assumption that you have a basic familiarity with the play at this point. So we're not going to do a synopsis. Uh, If you are somehow a newbie to Hamlet or, you know, if you just need to refresh your memory, you can brush up with our 101 and 201 episodes. Um, Our 101 Hamlet is our very first episode ever. We -hmm. also have a 201, which was in season one, episode 22. And we have a 101 for the Q1 version of Hamlet, um, which is season two, episode five yeah you can get so much hamlet i can't believe this is our fourth hamlet episode yeah i mean i kind of can though actually yeah well and it's definitely also not going to be the last because no nope we we like hamlet we do and there's always stuff to say about him uh so in general like we said we're going to use 301 episodes to explore a single aspect of the play under discussion this week We're going to find out why my mom thought Hamlet was legit crazy pants. I'm excited. Um, (laughs) Why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Okay. so there's okay. There's a a rather large backstory to what we're about to do today. So way back in the late 90s. 
a good, oh Jesus, 20 years ago. I was in high school and my mom and I and my best friend, uh, my, my childhood best friend, hey Arliss, um, and her mom, we took evening classes at Modesto Junior College. It was like two blocks from the house where I grew up and we would do like evening classes in film appreciation or Shakespeare and like I know hashtag on brand that's fucking adorable I know I know and we did it just like for funsies there were a couple of professors in the theater and the English departments that we really liked and so we just there were evening classes with them and it was a good way for um, my friend Arliss and I to get a little bit of credit you know some college credit but also we just liked the topics so we took this Shakespeare class taught by Michael Lynch, who I think is actually still a teacher at MJC, Go Pirates. And he and my mom got into it about whether Hamlet was insane. And if you'll recall, listeners, if you've if you listened to our inaugural episode, um, this is a point that I brought up in uh, in that episode of like the the ongoing debate that that nearly tore my family asunder <laughs> um, <laughs> of of whether like. Hamlet is is completely just crafty and putting on the airs of insanity to get what he wants uh and whether he whether he starts out like totally insane and and that kind of colors the rest of his actions throughout the play or whether as as I have come to understand after watching Hamlet many many times is that it's sort of a, a slow descent from grief into uh being unhinged and um, that's what I think it is but yeah I also yeah. I think the the debate over Hamlet's madness um feels frankly very late 90s early 2000s yes. that it was really really hot then yeah. and it it seems to have fallen a little bit out of critical favor yeah no one kind of um, cares anymore yeah yeah so i'm i'm interested to like time travel oh my god mom yeah so like she and my professor got into it and of course then we got into it and then in 2000 like a year after this we even took this class we saw a production of hamlet at the oregon shakespeare festival because yeah it was our family vacation hamlet that year was played by this this guy named marco baricelli who like just like sidebar devilishly handsome in like <laughs> sexy Italian stallion kind of way like oh that man um but he played it that way he answered that question for my mom he played a Hamlet that mm. like was unhinged from the get-go and had kind of no idea like no self-awareness okay, and it okay. so it was sort of formative it vindicated my mom a lot and it kept the debate alive for years for our family and you know cut forward to 2015 when mm -hmm. I'm in, in the middle, school. yeah, I'm in the middle of grad school. It, uh, let's see, I get an email from her October 21st, 2015, That's and I went my through my birthday. emails and that was dug my it up. Birthday. Oh my god, no, it wasn't. Yes, it was. Yeah, no, it wasn't. 15. You were yes, born in 85, was. right? Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my All right. birthday. Well, little did she know, my mom, uh, on your 30th birthday, she felt it necessary to dig up this old essay and send it to me probably because she missed me and wanted to still be part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I have this copy of her 1999 essay is Hamlet crazy. And I, I never Amazing. bothered to read it. Um, I probably read it at the time back in, in 99 and it didn't really, you know, it's kind of went over my head. I didn't sure, really like, sure. pay attention to it. I had my own papers to write. And also like I had notes to pass with my friend Arliss in the class. Like I was not paying attention. <laughs> Um, You're such a good student. I am a great student, okay? But I also had a massive crush on a boy, and that took precedence over everything. Mm. Arliss and I had to, like, deconstruct all of it 
in in our downtime. <laughs> so I figure this episode today for us is going to go a little bit like it's almost going to be in format, in style. It might be a little bit of an homage to our favorite podcast besides our own. Um, My dad wrote a porno, mm-hmm, where we, mm-hmm. where I will just, I will read some stuff, and we can kind of stop and start, and talk about what we're hearing, great uh, as I'm reading. And I will say, I mean, I did preview this. Uh, I went through a little bit of a journey to find this paper again. I was, because I pitched. I remember pitching you the idea months mm-hmm. ago when you were here for mm-hmm. Christmas mm-hmm. and then and I was like I'm going to Marie Kondo my crap and I'm going to find <sighs> things and then I couldn't find the hard copy of this paper like the original paper and I remember very distinctly when I had to go through my mom's things 2 years ago that I had seen it uh and I couldn't remember if I had if I had shredded it and tossed it at the time like right. you know not thinking ever that I would want it again <laughs> but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thanks to the magic of Gmail um, I, I was able to pull it out of, out of my email archives from God bless. Um, four years ago. Yeah. So while I didn't have the original hard copy with her A on it, by the way, she got an A on this paper. <laughs> yes, she got an Dory. A. Yeah, she got an A on this paper begrudgingly from her <laughs> teacher. <laughs> he was such a curmudgeon about it. Like, I, I just love Michael Lynch. I think he's great. So I, I found it. And and so I guess without further ado, how long is yeah. it? Um, hard to tell because I printed off the email and um, uh, it's like one, two, three, four. It's like it's like a ten-page paper, an eight-page paper. Actually, not even. It's more like seven, seven and a half to eight. It's it's four pages double sided. All right, it's like a research paper. I know. Well, kinda. And she did sure, do sure, a little sure. bit of research. Um, she did Does do a bit of research. Does it have a bibliography? Um. Uh no. Ugh. No. Oh, right. It does have a footnote. Mm. And my mom was not savvy enough in in word processor um at the time to like put in a footnote the proper way so it's just a it's just a line of asterisks and then it says note (laughs) in like regular text size at the bottom of the last page um yeah and she wants everyone to know that the the text of hamlet referred to herein is signet classics newly revised 1986 signet classics yeah that's a Um, that is a the workhorse of the classroom shakespeare yes yes Those are not terrible texts. No. Just to, for anyone who thought that sounded shady, those are, no shade here. No, they're they're the workhorse because they're just Mm -hmm. kind of the bare bones, Mm -hmm. you know, really solid um, texts. Yeah. yeah, So I will forewarn our listeners that my mom was a lawyer. Uh, I've probably mentioned that on the show before, but Mm -hmm. you should know because there's going to be like legalese in in this s in this english essay actually theater it's, it was for a theater 100 class i'm looking at the heading now uh so just be prepared for that she practiced Great. family law for 40 years so she kind of couldn't help it she couldn't help speaking like a lawyer <laughs> <laughs> um okay so Take and if anybody's away. yeah if anybody's listening who uh knew my mom um if you concentrate hard enough i've been told my voice sounds a lot like her um so maybe you can just pretend it's her
This essay was written by Dory E. Whitlock for the Theater 100 class on November 11th, 1999. Title, Is Hamlet Crazy? All caps. <laughs> Bold. Yes. Yes, Dory. <laughs> is he, though? Like, and of course, okay, this, I have to stop already. This is like pre-texting lexicon where like Mm -hmm. all caps Mm -hmm. meant screaming but now reading it with that lens because we can't help it it she's screaming she's screaming at us okay (laughs) is he crazy i don't know okay the traditional view of hamlet the title character in william shakespeare's renowned play hamlet is that he is quote-unquote normal sane and then affects lunacy as part of his plot to revenge the death of his father In this study, we will first examine what is meant by sanity or insanity and then apply it to this character to better discover his state of mind throughout the play. Such a lawyer. Queen. Queen lawyer. Like, opening statement to the jury. Strong. Strong. Here we go. In Black's Law Dictionary, a much-quoted and standard tome by Henry Campbell Black, quote-unquote, insanity, is generally defined as, quote, unsoundness of mind, madness, mental alienation or derangement, a morbid psychic condition resulting from a disorder of the brain, end quote. But the more specific definitions and synonyms for this word go on for seven more pages of small print. The usual wow. test, yeah, <laughs> the usual test for mental capacity with regard to criminal responsibility is that the perpetrator is, quote, incapable of distinguishing between right and wrong, end quote. And she gives some MLA citations. Go, mom. The book goes on to distinguish cases of, quote, mere frenzy or ungovernable passion, which controls the will and motives, end quote, as not being insanity sufficient to excuse a crime. Garner v. State, 112 something, some kind of citation of some kind of case law. Because lawyer. When the sanity test is applied to a person who may need a conservator or guardian or to be placed in a mental institution, the test is whether the person, quote, suffers such as to make his going at large a source of danger to himself or others, end quote. It goes on to state that, quote, there must be such a deprivation of reason and judgment as to render him incapable of understanding and acting with discretion in the ordinary affairs of life, end quote. She's doing a lot of quoting. She's doing a lot of front-loading. Sure, sure. Gotta do the lit review. And here we go. She's about to hit me with some Latin. Bear with me, Mm, everybody. mm Mm-hmm. Blacks has another entry for diminished responsibility doctrine where, quote, proof of a mental derangement short of insanity is submitted as evidence of lack of deliberate or premeditated design. Insanist es qui abjecta ratione omnia cum impetu et furore facet, in parentheses. He is insane who, reason being thrown away, does everything with violence and rage. Okay. I know. Um, pretty sure my mom has just turned into one of those Latin teachers from Love's Labor's Lost. Okay. Yep. This is how the law thinks of insanity. These are not new doctrines, but very old concepts which come down to us from many hundreds of years of grappling with these issues. Is our young Danish prince insane with these definitions? The king and queen do not seek to punish him for the death of Polonius. Is this a tacit understanding of his mental condition or just a favor of rank? Hamlet shows himself to be quite a danger to others. 
witness the fate of his friends from school, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and the poor Ophelia, if not immediately to himself. What exactly is going on in Hamlet's mind? She's very carefully italicized that there. Hamlet appears on stage for the first time in Act 1, Scene 2. He is conducting a verbal war with his mother and uncle. His first first speech describes his grief, showing a self-awareness of his current state of mind. Immediately, he compares himself to a person who might be playing with this show of emotion. For they are actions that a man might play. Clearly, at the start of the play, then, Hamlet appears rational. But the first time he is alone on stage, merely a few moments later, he rails against the fact that suicide is against God's law. He is no teenager, this prince. He is a man. Semicolon. Mm-hmm. Yet he speaks as one who is on the brink of doing himself harm. He then rants about the speed of his mother's marriage and jumps from two months to within a month to a little month to within a month again. His rage and disgust are showing, and this is before he meets the ghost for the first time. Oh, also, fair warning, if you hate the passive voice, just buckle mm. up. My mom mom really liked it. Maybe it was a legal thing. Maybe it was just a, a Dory thing. I don't oh, know. I can see the passive voice being extremely useful for the law profession. Like, That's extremely true. Extremely useful. That's true. That's probably. Yeah, you're right. That's probably yeah. what it is. Yeah. Because passivity negates yeah. culpability. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. So that's just a sort of a side effect of her profession. So forgive her in advance if you hate it. Too bad. Hamlet's speech to Horatio in scene four has a foreshadowing of his loss of reason. So oft it chances in, in particular men that for some vicious mole of nature in them by the ore growth of some complexion, oft breaking down the pales and forts of reason. Shakespeare loved to tell the audience what was coming next. He used this device often. Here, Hamlet himself is saying that loss of reason happens, or could happen, to anyone. We know the ghost is not in Hamlet's mind alone. Others have seen him. So the playwright is not trying to say this is madness in Hamlet. Soon after beginning to listen to the ghost, Hamlet makes his first statement of firm purpose to revenge his father's death. Haste me to know it, that I, with wings as swift as meditation or the thoughts of love, may sweep to my revenge. When the ghost leaves him... Hamlet rants again about the sins of his mother and uncle, and some more about how he will hold his duty first and foremost in his brain. He rejoins his most most faithful Horatio, and at once appears to his dear friend as a person of wild and whirling words. He is changed. He states at the end of the first act that he will put an antic disposition on, which is where, page turn, most scholars look for his pretense of insanity. Look rather to Hamlet's perception of the world at this point and the way others, some close friends, see him to determine whether he is still in our reality. Hamlet puts on madness or foolishness in, this, in his conversation with Polonius in Act 2, Scene 2, and Polonius terms it such. Though, it, though this be madness, yet there is method in it. This is a young man who began the play thinking of suicide. Now, he decides that if he pretends to be crazy, he will fool everyone about his true motives and purpose. There is something manic in this supposition, a form of delusion of grandeur, as he presumes he is smarter than everyone else and can fool them, and some paranoia, as this decision necessarily includes the notion that others suspect him, so he must be wary. As he meets his school chums, which is one word, by the way, school chums. School chums. That's so 1960s. As he meets his school chums, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, he states outright that there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so, and then goes on to question their motives almost immediately. 
There's nothing in the play to date to show us that these two old friends should be anything but what they appear to be, yet Hamlet immediately is suspicious of them, and they are confused about his reception. Is there any quote-unquote sane reason why Hamlet should be afraid of the fact that his uncle has asked his old friends to come and visit him? Indeed, even in Act 2, he has peopled his mind with strange shadows and he suspects everyone. Hamlet refers to his own garb as entertaining, then tells his friends that although he knows the king and queen believe him to be mad, he is sane. Again, this is his own view of his status and not that of others. As this act ends, Hamlet is ranting to himself about how much a coward he is to fail to act to revenge his dead father. Yet instead of planning a normal confrontation or duel or other common act of vengeance, he cooks up the famous play within a play idea where he will write a few lines and catch the conscience of the king. To him, this makes sense. We accept it because we know the play so well. But is it really a sane act? Is Hamlet's thought process here supportable as normal reasoning? Instead of calling out the king and telling all assembled what he knows of the death of his father, he gets all caught up in the visiting actors and their productions. He practically directs, produces, stages, as well as writes the mousetrap. Here, then, is a prime example of ha Hamlet's craziness showing where he believes himself to be sane. Mm. Mm. I want to come back to that point, I think. Even in the famous soliloquy to be or not to be, Hamlet returns to the theme of suicide. To die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. She's added an exclamation point, I think. Mm. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep. By definition, a person who dwells on self-destruction is not sane. He immediately thereafter rejects Ophelia and mocks her and tells her, get thee to a nunnery. It could be that Hamlet believes he is protecting his love from what will come. Perhaps, like Polonius, Hamlet knows he cannot marry her, and she will be safe in a convent away from the castle. His act for her is clear, however. He wants her to believe him mad. He tells her that, the spe that her speech hath made me mad. She believes him and is devastated. To have seen what I have seen, see what I see. When this scene is viewed objectively, is this really the way a truly sane person would handle his true love? Hamlet's mind has made him believe that his choices here are good ones. Ophelia's reactions to Hamlet tell us that he is not making any sense at all, and even she, his lover, cannot pierce his delusion. Later in Act 3, we see the play within a play. Hamlet speaks to Ophelia about his mother and says that his father just has just died two hours ago. She corrects him. Nay, tis twice two months, my lord. Hamlet's feelings about his mother and her relationship with him and the king come to a climax in this act. Hamlet is caught up in the drama being acted out for his uncle, and is most inappropriate in his interruptions of the play itself. Shortly after the king leaves, the queen calls for Hamlet. He plans. Let me be cruel, not unnatural. I will speak daggers to her, but use none. My tongue and soul in this be hypocrites. Their meeting in Act 3, Scene 4, shows the strangeness in their relationship, the intimacy they enjoy, and the hatred Hamlet has for her and her deeds. Then he kills the person behind the heiress who turns out to be Polonius. His next speech, instead of being one of shock at his own deed, instead is one pointed at his mother for her unnatural act, her marriage with the king, as the thing which brings on the judgment of heaven. Heaven's face does glow with heated visage as against the doom is thought sick in the act. 
We might think he was heartsick at his own rash murder, but he is totally concentrating on his mother. This is not the reaction of a rational person either. The queen, his mother, knows him better probably than any other person, yet she also reacts to Hamlet here as if he is mad. She is not an audience for his play acting. His speech about the differences between the king and the dead king, his confrontation with the ghost itself in this scene, show him to be acting as himself, not pretending. She believes he is seeing things, as she does not see the ghost. Yet he replies, it is not madness that I have uttered. Bring me to the test, and I will the matter reword which madness would gamble from. He still does not see himself as mad or deranged in any way. But can we go along with him? Can like, we? Can we? Can like, we, Dory? I like I, her I well-placed questions. She is. Yeah, she's getting That's there. such a lawyer move, P.S., a rhetorical question. Oh, yes. Yes. This paper is going to answer for us. Yeah. This paper is rife with them. Queen. Yeah. In Act 4, Hamlet gives his outrageous speech about Polonius's dead body. He shows no remorse whatsoever for taking his lover's father's life. He jests about it. As he departs for England, he states again his obsession with his mother's sex life with the king. My mother, father and mother, is man and wife. Man and wife is one flesh. And so my mother. He is not acting as one might expect uh, of a person who just committed a, quote, accidental murder and who just had a heavily emotional scene with his mother. Does he suffer from a mental derangement? Scene four of act four is where Hamlet compares himself to the army of Fortinbras. He uses the example of this army to beat himself up again for his sloth in seeking the revenge he promised the ghost. He believes himself to have reason as he states God made men with reason to use it, not to fust. Again, he tells himself he will to action, yet he does nothing. If Hamlet were in fact rational, rather than just believing himself to be so, he would turn around and go take care of business. Instead, off he goes to England. In Act 5, Hamlet observes the burial rites for Ophelia. He jumps out and declares that he himself had far more love for her than any brother could. Instead of being astonished at her death or grieving for her, he picks a fight with her brother. The queen says, this is mere madness, and the king as well tells Laertes, oh, he is mad. Either everyone else in this play is stupid or crazy or both, or Hamlet is over the edge. Amazing. Now, now for the cream. Later in Act 5, Hamlet tells Horatio about his adventures at sea and dismisses the deaths of his former friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, as if it were nothing. He states, Why, man, they did make love to this employment, showing he believes they were in league with the king. There is no proof of their knowing they carried Hamlet's death sentence anywhere in the play. It is in Hamlet's mind. Hamlet accepts the show of swords with Laertes, musing again about, the, about death. Still, he makes no attempt to do his duty and kill the king outright. He addresses Laertes at the beginning of the fight, telling him of his sore distraction and madness. Now, the audience has here to decide. Is Hamlet lying to Laertes in this most serious and final battle, trying to blame his action toward Laertes' father and sister down to his pretended madness, or... Is Hamlet stating that he really knows he's off-center, unbalanced? It hardly seems in character for this prince to try to foist off his actions on his pretended insanity. Therefore, Hamlet perhaps recognizes here, at last, that he is not truly rational, that his worldview is not normal or sane. As he dies, he tells Horatio to report me and my cause aright, perhaps showing us that he knows it's been a muddle all along. 
Hamlet does not fail to understand the difference between right and wrong. He most certainly is caught up in a frenzy of passion. He is shown to be a danger to himself and to others. He may not fit in the legal definition of a person who should, by reason of insanity, escape responsibility for his actions, but he clearly has a mental condition that makes it difficult, if not impossible, for him to function normally in his society. He may thus be crazy because he is not like others. His reality is not shared by many, including his closest friends and family. They view him as disturbed. The Native Americans viewed insanity as being touched by the gods. Perhaps that is the way the playwright sees Hamlet and why he is so dear to him. Still crazy after all these years. End quote. She ends. She, that's a Paul Simon quote. She finishes with a Paul Simon quote. End of Your essay. Your is such goals. <laughs> Shakespeare, 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 (laughs) Paul Simon, Dory out. Yeah, yeah. And like weird footnote. And then, yeah. So that's it. That's that's the thing. I love that. Is Hamlet crazy? She breaks it down and bases everything on Black's law book definition of legal insanity. Yeah. So I'm interested. I'm so interested for a lot of reasons, but most... Mostly now, today in 2019, um, like this kind of scholarship would not fly, right? For a lot of reasons. Oh, for sure. Um, but something that uh, some people who I know, and I will not name names, but some people uh, like to be really aggressive about is taking modern concepts and applying them to early modern or pre-modern texts and like Mm -hmm. well we can't do that because you know because um like the early moderns didn't have a concept of bodily autonomy or they didn't have the same concept of bodily autonomy that we do so how can we talk about women being autonomous creatures when the early moderns didn't see them that way and so why should we apply this kind of lens to these plays that kind of Mm -hmm. thing yeah um but i love i love bringing in the the law the legal definitions um yeah because i think it's really like this is first of all it's a beautiful sort of snapshot of your mother as a human and her brain and the way it (laughs) worked like this is your mother just in essence in in beautiful distilled on paper sweet dory a little bit right there (laughs) um it's just it's i mean you know i met the woman once but i'm like yep that's dory right there i hear (laughs) there she is um yeah and and seeing how she approached Shakespeare from her own, you know, lens of understanding the world. That's all we do, right? Is we bring our own experiences to the things we encounter. That's how we understand them. Um, You know, it's sort of the fundamental idea behind my first master's thesis. And the one that's driving me into the dissertation is we, we bring what we have inside us and we apply it to Shakespeare. Um, and then sometimes we apply Shakespeare to us, whatever. So I love, I love that we get to see her doing this so clearly and so idiosyncratically and so very dory Yeah. Yeah. Dorily. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, and I think, I think, uh, you know, 
were my mom here now as an actual guest, she would like to point out, um, she would like it known that I would, I don't, I can't really speak for Black's Law Dictionary precisely, but the law is real old. And Mm -hmm. most of American law and our judicial system is founded on the British judicial system. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and yes, property is nine tenths of the law. Uh, So like where insanity fits into that, I don't know. And maybe there are some, you know, young English barristers and solicitors out there who are listeners who can tell us a little bit more about the intricacies of British law. Um, But I think my mom would like it pointed out that that the law does not post date Shakespeare. No, like there's there's there have been laws and there have been definitions for insanity, etc. Mm-hmm. since before Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would have known several of them. Sure. For sure. Yeah. And it may not be exactly, you know, what this is in Black's Law Dictionary, but but it was there. So I think it's it's fair to apply a legal definition to this character. It's more fair than maybe like because what people really love to do is is take Freud <laughs> Sigmund Freud, our favorite um, crackhead, who's been thoroughly debunked BT dubs. A lot of people like to apply Freud to Hamlet because of his comments about Gertrude. You know, even Laurence Olivier, I think, wanted to argue that there was a lot of Freud happening and Freudian stuff happening with Hamlet when, like, that's not fair. <laughs> like, yeah. don't do that. There was no Freud with him, with Shakespeare. Like, don't do that. But there was the law, so... Um, just trying to advocate for my mom here. I love um, it. I, <laughs> I mean, it's it's outdated thinking and it's outdated scholarship, but like, yeah. duh, it's twenty years old. Um, yeah. But I think it's really, I think it's lovely. I think it's a lovely piece and a really um, a wonderful way, a wonderful example of how Shakespeare is for everyone you know that's one of our like podcast soapboxes right is that we don't we don't want to gatekeep Shakespeare right and you just gave us this beautiful example of a lawyer of family law coming to Shakespeare and reckoning with it on terms that she understood and I love that I love that thank you for sharing that with us yeah yeah I know that she was really really happy when I went into this program because she knew it was something that I loved um, and that it was making me happy but also you know she liked to argue and I think she was <laughs> um, resurrecting the is Hamlet crazy argument to to like you know stay part of stay part of the conversation with me so and and it's not that I didn't agree with her I, I mean <laughs> You know, I mean, I didn't. I, I Okay, I didn't agree with her completely. I mean, although I will say, I will say this, looking back at that that 2000 production that she's referencing, um, that production made a very convincing argument. Marco was, is uh, a very talented performer, and, and he, he made that uh, an incredibly believable um, interpretation of Hamlet, and there was a lot of buy-in there. Like my mom was like vindication and we're sitting in the front row. Cause we're that family that sits in the front row. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're like in their huge outdoor space, like crying actual tears over Hamlet because, because he's nuts and he couldn't help himself, 
you know, so it, it became really, really tragic in that in that production because he was just beside himself. So I do remember that production and I remember that it was very convincing. I also know that I have since seen other productions that are also convincing with different interpretations. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, but she would never let it go. Every time we would talk about Hamlet, every time we would see different productions of Hamlet, every time I would come home, you know, from school, like the once a summer that I would come home, uh, it came up. So <laughs> like it was the, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And so now, now the world knows. You can debate that in the Twitter verse if you want. <laughs> today, mom gets the last word. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. About, let's give Dory the yeah. last word on that. So let's move on to gossip before I fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so I have a lot to say. Ooh, yeah. Uh, I'm looking at the notes now. I and I oh, have more tell t- me, girl. Tell me, tell me, tell uh, me. So um, as I have mentioned, I think last week, there was a production of The Changeling, Middleton and Rowley's Changeling, that came to Tuscaloosa this week, mm-hmm. um, starring our good friend Katie Osborne, who was delightful uh in it i delightful is the wrong word for this play she was <laughs> quite good okay uh she was quite good um so the changeling is a tragedy perhaps a tragicomedy um not quite a revenge tragedy i think definitely not a domestic tragedy it's a tragedy it ends mm-hmm. in death um mm-hmm. the comedic subplot is all about madhouse patience which is not great for this time period now today in 2019 we don't generally like making fun of people with mental illnesses and that whole the subplot was cut so it was nice and tight it was 90 minutes no intermission um and not a great production overall uh i think they had maybe two weeks of rehearsal and it was mostly Renaissance style rehearsal process. Mm-hmm. Um, so they all came in off book and just sort of pieced it together pretty quick. Katie played Beatrice Joanna, who is the protagonist. Um, mm-hmm. She's the main character. And I I had a lot of issues with this production. And I had a lot of issues with things that were said in the pre-show lecture and the post-show talkback. But I want to talk specifically about one single choice that this production made um so at the end of act three a rape happens defloris i i think it is it is clear the text makes it clear that defloris takes beatrice off stage and rapes her um and i want to read this for you now aubrey and i are going to read it together Mm -hmm. um because the point is that the rape happens off stage this is very clear so aubrey if you will read defloris um and just pick up from 152 i live in pain now okay i live in pain now that shooting eye will burn my heart to cinders oh sir hear me she that in life and love refuses me in death and shame my partner she shall be Stay, hear me once for all. I make thee master of all the wealth I have in gold and jewels. Let me go pour unto my bed with honor, and I am rich in all things. Let this silence thee. The wealth of all Valencia shall not buy my pleasure from me. Can you weep fate from its determined purpose? So soon you may weep me. Vengeance begins. Murder, I see, is followed by more sins. Was my creation in the womb so cursed it must engender with a viper first? 
Come, rise, and shroud your blushes in my bosom. Silence is one of pleasure's best receipts. Thy peace is wrought forever in this yielding. Lass, how the turtle pants. Thou'lt love anon what thou so fierce and faintst to venture on. Ew. So, yeah. Yeah. And then there's, uh. there's a, a dumb show of Beatrice's marriage to mm, Al Samaro. Mm-hmm. And then Beatrice comes on and she says, this fellow hasn't done me endlessly. Uh, and so on and yeah. so on. He raped me. 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 Mm-hmm. Is essentially what happens in that first speech in act four um yeah i'd forgotten how gross that passage is it's really i remember reading it but yeah so the rape textually happens off stage yeah they exit there's a stage direction there and this production staged the rape why Uh uh-huh well, that's that's the Why? question we'd all like to know. Like um, all of it graphically, like I need details. Well, it was like, sort of a like a weird, dumb, showy, ballet-y, mm, interpretive, dancey situation. Even worse, I hate interpretive dance yeah. rape. Um, but it was it was not. It was not easy to watch, even sure. in a little bit more abstract. Like they, there was grappling. Sure. He was on top of her. He ripped up mm-hmm. her dress. Uh, they rolled around on the floor a little bit, um, and then he, I think, shoved her through the, the discovery space. I think is how uh, that ended. Um, yeah. I, I knew going into this production that they were going to stage the rape because Katie's my best friend. We talk every day. I was mm-hmm. in the rehearsal room with them you know like not physically but like katie and i talked all the time so i vicariously I yeah. yeah yeah and and during the talk back uh my friend courtney said can you talk about the decision to stage the rape and the director didn't answer the question and sort of was like well you know this is the third time we've staged this play and every other time the rape has seen has been way more graphic and was sort of like wanted a pat on the back for it not being as graphic this time oh gee thanks yeah but like didn't really answer the question but like why stage the rape so i followed up and i said you know i just i'd like to piggyback off of courtney and i'd like to hear from the actors involved in the scene uh what the what the rehearsal process for this moment was like and you know if anyone in the cast wants to address what is the value of staging sexual violence on a college campus in 2019? Good question. Go you. Why, why, why? Tell me why. Tell me why this happened, right? Because I very, yeah. very strongly disagree with this as a production choice. I, I think it's a bad choice. And I think it's a thoughtless choice, especially when you know that this production that you are staging is going to tour to two college campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, th- so they went to Mississippi state maybe uh, before they came to us. And I don't know, I don't know who their target audience was there. Um, but I think, I think they knew coming into Tuscaloosa that they were going to be primarily um, performing for graduate students and theater students. My, my Renaissance program brought them in so it was all of our students and faculty and 
friends of our program, right? But several of us teach BritLit and had offered it up to our students as extra credit. I'd emailed my students about it three or four times. I said, you know, it's free, but you have to reserve a ticket. Here's the link. Um, FYI, this play deals with sexual violence, and I have heard that they are staging some of this sexual violence. So just be aware. Well, it's a good thing you knew. Imagine being at the other college and they didn't know. Well, so, so after I had asked this question, but what's the value of staging it for college students um the director i think or maybe someone else but i think it was the director because he did most of the talking was like well they had specifically requested this play because it dealt with sexual violence which all right but like why that still doesn't answer the question why are we staging the sexual violence and then the conversation sort of moved on katie talked a little bit about the rehearsal process um and how how they had worked that scene in rehearsal and how it grew from you know this moment to that moment to the next moment uh and then the conversation moved on and then it came back around uh because a a colleague of mine who's here at the at the strode program nick helms who by like a weird random twist of fate ended up in the production uh he was playing jasperino and he was delightful he he sort of brought it back and he was like you know i just i want to i want to come back to jess's question um about why why are we staging the sexual violence uh and i apologies to nick have completely forgotten what he said um but i i remember that it was thoughtful and insightful and incisive and very eloquent and and a really good response that sort of took the production to task a little bit and also uh, addressed my my question which was why why are we doing this and then katie so he was able to but the director definitely did not yeah i well and then after nick had had addressed my question katie started talking again and this is this is the moment i remember um and again apologies to nick for not remembering what you said i just remember it was good you know katie said she didn't justify the choice but she said you know this is what sexual assault looks like today in 2019 on a college campus right is this happens and then the victim is stuck going to school every day going to work every day going to wherever every day and having to see their attacker every day and having to interact with them and at at its heart the changeling is perhaps a play about the fallout of sexual assault and what happens when the victim is forced to continue to interact with uh, their abuser. And that is a lesson for college campuses, right? Because so often in this country, um, sexual assault and rape on college campuses goes unreported and on punished i don't i'm not sure that that's the right word but yeah unaddressed i think that's a fair word yeah Yeah, like cases cases come to the title nine office all the time and they get dismissed all the time especially perhaps disproportionately when athletes are involved you know it's it is a an issue that disproportionately affects young women um who then have to go to class every day and spend time with their attacker or have to continue to interact with them on student government or in whatever capacity, right? Because Mm -hmm. there's, there's nothing 
there, yeah. there are no consequences. Um, yep. Because of lack of evidence or lack of follow through or. And I thought that was a really lovely answer. Right. Like I, I still, I very strongly disagree with the choice that the production made. I don't think they should have staged it. Um, I think what the text gives us is enough. Um, And I, I have talked about this book endlessly. Kim Solga has a book um, called uh, staging violence against women in early modern drama, I think is the title. And if not, it's very close to that. Um, And she has a whole chapter on the changeling and why, why when sexual violence happens, against women in early modern drama it happens off stage why we we only get to see the aftermath why women's bodies aren't allowed to matter in that moment of violence um mm-hmm. it's a fantastic book everyone should get a copy everyone should read it i just i left the production feeling a little disheartened mm-hmm. um you know the production itself on the whole, fine. They did a good job. They have nice tight run. Katie was great. But this one moment, this one extra textual moment, I thought was irresponsible. And I thought, I don't know what I thought it was. It was not good. I thought it was thoughtless and irresponsible. And um, I came out of that production feeling like not just Beatrice Joanna wasn't allowed a voice and wasn't allowed to matter, but I, as a female audience member, wasn't allowed a voice and wasn't allowed to matter. Um. Mm. And I don't I don't want to say that this production was an assault on me because it wasn't. Let me be clear. Me sitting through this performance was not an aggressive act, Um, but it was a disheartening one. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's a huge conversation right now. I've read lots of articles in various venues, theater magazines, academic journals recently of like, you know, just because a trauma happens in a script or, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a in a stage production, like, should we show it if it inflicts pain? Like, mm-hmm. is it, you know, is it our job to do it anyway right. and inflict more pain, or or do we spare our viewers that pain, knowing that whatever it is they imagine and are already connecting to is already bad enough yeah and i i think um theater you know this is this is a conversation surrounding these tricky moments and and unsettling content in all kinds of entertainment media um but theater is is a special beast because it's a captive audience right if it's if you go to a movie you can fast well i guess if you go to a movie you can't fast forward but if you're you know streaming a movie at home you can fast forward you can skip right. um right. frankly if you're if you're in a movie theater you can usually get up and leave pretty easily yeah. um theaters you know regular playhouse theaters often that's a lot harder to do you can't get up and leave you're a pretty captive audience you can't yeah. pull out your phone to sort of get on instagram and try to check out while this disturbing thing happens you can't do that you are stuck um and the best you can probably do without being disruptive to everyone else's experience is close your eyes or you know look at your lap look at the ceiling um right but that that's not enough of a of a mediator you can't escape it 
you know, moments of extreme violence of frankly any kind uh, in theater need to be handled differently mm-hmm. than they do in, in any other medium. Yeah. So. Yeah. Or at least have like have a well thought out reason for why you're going to do this besides, well, I toned it down from last time. Right. You know, like have a reason for it. You know, I've I've seen pieces of theater where there's like pretty graphic and violent sexuality on stage. But it is and uh, that was I'm thinking specifically of um, Lynn Nottage's uh, play Ruined, um, mm-hmm. which is about, you know, sexual violence uh, in in Congo the Republic of Congo. And it is, I mean, I cried for a half an hour after that play. I just, it kind of wrecked me for a while. And, and that's okay. You know, I mean, that's, you know, part of me is always like, well, you know, that's what theater does. It's supposed to push your buttons, man. You know, it's supposed to make you feel stuff. But also like, sometimes you don't want to feel that stuff. Sometimes you really just don't. And, 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 you know, I at least justify that kind of experience in my mind that, well, you know, I have something to learn from this and there's a really good reason why it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if it starts to feel like you said, like there's just not really a justification other than the male director wanted it to happen and yep. wanted to show it. Yep. That to me feels sloppy. Yeah. And there's a difference between disturbing moments in a play about a disturbing subject Right. And disturbing right. moments in a play not about a disturbing subject. Right. 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 Like, or like it's written fairly well for you in the original text. You don't yeah. need to elaborate. Yeah. 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 I get you. Anyway, yeah. we we should maybe move on. <laughs> yeah. But that's like that's an important conversation yeah. to be having and to be thinking yeah. about. So, yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> Dick bracket time. Don't you dick love bracket. moving from sexual assault to a dick bracket? Hey, at least it's a flaccid dick. Yeah. Uh, all right. So this is a this is a special week because we have uh, the last matchup of the no, not the last matchup. Sorry, we have the second to last matchup of the elite eight, and then the first matchup of the final four because that's mm-hmm. how our dick bracket works. So last week we had Cardinal from the Cardinal going up against Flaminio and Bracciano from the White Devil. Mm-hmm. White Devil boys are moving forward. Cardinal's yeah. out on his ass. Um, that's where I we guess, stand. I guess two villains are better than one in this case. I, I guess, but we're I well take us. Was it tight? Was it a tight race? Not for that really. One? No. No, it was a pretty slanted towards well, towards I the mean, guys. It was it was like a sixty forty kind of okay. split you know okay. it, wasn't, it wasn't tight but it wasn't a landslide either sure okay so. all right so this week wdb white devil in. boys oh sorry okay there we go yep i'm with it i'm hip okay <laughs> this week the white devil boys move straight from their last matchup with the cardinal uh into the final four against the duchess of malfi brothers ha 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 it's the battle of the brothers it's the battle of the boys so we've got the malfi boys versus the white devil boys they're equally awful they're finally evenly matched two to two mm-hmm we shall see. Yeah, I'm interested who, in this one. Who will triumph? This yeah. it's a tough one. It's tough. Yeah. They're they're very evenly matched. So yeah. that's exciting. And yeah. Great. Double yeah. your pleasure. 
Gross. Double Sorry. your murder, more like. Double your murder, double your fun. Okay. Yeah, so that does it for us in this 301 episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Tune in next week for our rescheduled The Witch 101 with a special guest. It's going to be The Tits. I would like to take us out on a little bit of a quote from Hamlet, if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, do it. Um, it's a little sad, but it popped into my head. Um And it's the last piece of Shakespeare that my mom quoted to me since this started out with my mom. Um, And I mean, there's, well, I won't go too far into it, but basically when she got the diagnosis very, very close before, um, before she died, she said that the first thing that popped into her mind was this. She said, Claudius's, but you must know your father lost a father. That father lost, lost his, and the survivor bound in filial obligation for some term to do obsequious sorrow. Um, That's beautiful. It is. I didn't want to hear it when she said it, but that was... (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) the readiness is all. Indeed. All right. Teary, teary wamlet out. Okay. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can drop us a line at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or follow us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or on Twitter at hurlyburlyshake. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are strictly our own and not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. In a pink Cadillac, ten thousand dollars in a sack in the bag. It costs thirty-five. I don't aim to use back. They got no bullets, just a wheel to whack. Um, the email that this paper came with is kind of telling too, and I've got it here. So she sent it to three of us in 2015, uh, to a family friend, and to my sister, and to me, and she said. I know OBS does not agree with me. Neither did my prof. <laughs> I answered this crazy question the way Libby Apple and Marco Baricelli did at OSF in 2000. Yes, all caps, he's nuts. I have not read this for all the years since I did it. So if you think it's terrible, so be it. Everyone is free to disagree about the tortured Dane. <laughs> Aww. Yeah. Sweet yeah. Dory. I know.